The Guns of Shiloh, a story of the Great Western Campaign, by Joseph A. Altscheller. Volume 2 in the Civil War series. Produced by Civil War Audio at civilwar.builtwithflash.com. Read by John Bruzes. Chapter 11, The Southern Attack. The excitement in the Union Army was intense and joyous. The cheers rolled like volleys among these farmer lads of the West. Dick, Warner, and Pennington stood up and shouted with the rest. I should judge that our chances of success have increased at least fifty, yes, sixty percent, said Warner. As we have remarked before, this control of the water is a mighty thing. We fight the Johnny Rebs for the land, but we have the water already. Look at those gunboats, will you? Aren't they the sauciest little things you ever saw? Once more the Navy was showing, as it has always shown throughout its career, its daring and brilliant qualities. Foote, the Commodore, although he had had no time to repair his four small fighting boats after the encounter with Fort Henry, steamed straight up the river and engaged the concentric fire from the great guns of the southern batteries, which opened upon him with a tremendous crash. The boys watched the duel with amazement. They did not believe that small vessels could live under such fire, but live they did. Great columns of smoke floated over them, and hid them at times from the watchers, but when the smoke lifted a little, or was split apart by the shattering fire of the guns, the black hulls of the gunboats always reappeared, and now they were not more than three or four hundred yards from Donaldson. I take it that this is a covering fire, said Sergeant Whitley, who stood by. Four little vessels could not expect to reduce such a powerful fortress as Donaldson. It's not Fort Henry that we're fighting now. The chances are at least ninety-five percent in favor of your supposition, said Warner. The sergeant's theory, in fact, was absolutely correct. Further down the river, the transports were unloading regiment after regiment of fresh troops and vast supplies of ammunition and provisions. Soon five thousand men were formed in line and marched to Grant's relief, while long lines of wagons brought up the stores so badly needed. Now the stern and silent general was able to make the investment complete, but the fiery little fleet did not cease to push the attack. There was a time when it seemed that the gunboats would be able to pass the fortress and rake it from a point up the river. Many of the guns in the water batteries had been silenced, but the final achievement was too great for so small a force. The rudder of one of Foote's gunboats was shot away, the wheel of another soon went the same way, and both drifted helplessly down the stream. The other two then retreated, and the fire of both fort and fleet ceased. But there was joy in the Union camp. The soldiers had an abundance of food now, and soon the long ring of fire showed that they were preparing it. Their forces had been increased a third, and there was a fresh outburst of courage and vigor. But Grant ordered no more attacks at present. After the men had eaten and rested a little, picks and spades were swung along a line miles in length. He was fortifying his own position, and it was evident to his men that he meant to stay there until he won or was destroyed. Dick was conscious once more of a sanguine thrill. 
Like the others, he felt the strong hand over him, and the certainty that they were led with judgment and decision made him believe that all things were possible. Yet the work of fortifying continued but a little while. The men were exhausted by cold and fatigue, and were compelled to lay down their tools. The fires were built anew, and they hovered about them for shelter and rest. The wan twilight showed the close of the wintry day, and with the increasing chill, a part of Dick's sanguine feeling departed. The gallant little fleet, although it had brought fresh men and supplies, and had protected their landing, had been driven back. The investment of the fort was complete only on one side of the river, and steamers coming up the Cumberland from Nashville might yet take off the garrison in safety. Then the work of the silent general, all their hardship and fighting, would be at least in part a failure. The Vermont youth, who seemed to be always of the same temper, neither very high nor very low, noticed his change of expression. Don't let your hopes decrease, Dick, he said. Remember that at least twenty percent of the decline is due to the darkness and inaction. In the morning, when the light comes once more, and we're up and doing again, you'll get back all the twenty percent you're losing now. It's not to be all in action with you boys tonight, even, said Colonel Winchester, who overheard his closing words. I want you three to go with me on a tour of inspection, or rather scouting duty. It may please you to know that it is the special wish of General Grant. Aware that I had some knowledge of the country, he has detailed me for the duty, and I choose you as my assistants. I'm sure that the skill and danger such a task requires will make you all the more eager for it. The three youths responded quickly and with zeal, and Sergeant Whitley, when he was chosen too, nodded in silent gratitude. The night was dark, overcast with clouds, and in an hour Colonel Winchester, with his four, departed upon his perilous mission. He was to secure information in regard to the southern army, and to do that they were to go very near the southern lines, if not actually inside them. Such an attempt would be hazardous in the extreme in the face of a vigilant watch. But on the other hand, they would be aided by the fact that both North and South were of like blood and language. Even more, many of those in the opposing camps came from the same localities, and often were of kin. Dick's regiment had been stationed at the southern end of the line, near the little town of Dover, but they now advanced northward and westward marching for a long time along their inner line. It was Colonel Winchester's intention to reach Hickman Creek, which formed their northern barrier, creep in the fringe of bushes on its banks, and then approach the fort. When they reached the desired point, the night was well advanced, and yet dark with the somber clouds hanging over river and fort and field of battle. The wind blew out of the northwest, sharp and intensely cold. The snow crunched under their feet, but the four had wrapped themselves in heavy overcoats, and they were so engrossed in their mission that neither wind nor snow was anything to them. They passed along the bank of the creek, keeping well within the shadow of the bushes, leaving behind them the last outpost of the Union Army, and then slowly drew near to the fort. They saw before them many lights burning in the darkness, and at last they discerned dim figures walking back and forth. Dick knew that these were the southern sentinels, 
The four went a little nearer, and then crouched down in the snow among some low bushes. Now they saw the southern sentinels more distinctly. Some, in fact, were silhouetted sharply as they passed before the southern fires. Northern sharpshooters could have crept up and picked off many of them, as the southern sharpshooters in turn might have served many of the northern watchers. But in this mighty war there was little of such useless and merciless enterprise. The men soon ceased to have personal animosity, and in the nights between the great battles, when the armies yet lay face to face, the hostile pickets would often exchange gossip and tobacco. Even in a conflict waged so long and with so much desperation, the essential kindliness of human nature would assert itself. The four, as they skirted the southern line, noticed no signs of further preparations by the Confederates. No men were throwing up earthworks or digging trenches. As well as they could surmise, the garrison, like the besieging army, was seeking shelter and rest, and from this fact the keen mind of Colonel Arthur Winchester divined that the defense was confused and headless. Colonel Winchester knew most of the leaders within Donaldson. He knew that Pillow was not of a strong and decided nature, nor was Floyd, who would rank first, of great military capacity. Buckner had talent, and he had served gallantly in the Mexican War, but he could not prevail over the others. The fame of Forrest, the Tennessee mountaineer, was already spreading, but a cavalryman could do little for the defense of a fort besieged by 20,000 well-equipped men, led by a general of unexcelled resolution. All that Colonel Winchester surmised was true. Inside the fort, confusion and doubt reigned. The fleeing garrison from Fort Henry had brought exaggerated reports of Grant's army. Very few of the thousands of young troops had ever been in battle before. They, too, suffered, though in a less degree, from cold and fatigue, but many were wounded. Pillow and Floyd, who had just arrived with his troops, talked of one thing and then another. Floyd, who might have sent word to his valiant and able chief, Johnston, did not take the trouble or forgot to inform him of his position. Buckner wanted to attack Grant the next morning with the full southern strength, and a comrade of his on old battlefields, Colonel George Kenton, sounded him ably. The black-bearded forest strode back and forth, striking the tops of his riding boots with his small riding whip, and saying ungrammatically but tersely and emphatically, We mustn't stay here like hogs in a pen. We must get at them with all our men, afore they can get at us. The illiterate mountaineer and stock driver had evolved exactly the same principle of war that Napoleon used. But Colonel Winchester and his comrades could only guess at what was going on in Donelson, and a guess always remains to be proved. So they must continue their perilous quest. Once they were hailed by a southern sentinel, but Colonel Winchester replied promptly that they belonged to Buckner's Kentuckians and had been sent out to examine the Union camp. He passed it off with such boldness and decision that they were gone before the picket had time to express a doubt. But as they came toward the center of the line and drew nearer to the fort itself, they met another picket, who was either more watchful or more acute. He hailed them at a range of forty or fifty yards, and when Colonel Winchester made the same reply, he ordered them to halt and give the countersign. But when no answer came, he fired instantly, 
at the tall figure of Colonel Winchester and uttered a loud cry of, Yankees! Luckily, the dim light was tricky, and his bullet merely clipped the colonel's hair. But there was nothing for the four to do now, save run with all their undignified might for their own camp. Come on, lads! shouted Colonel Winchester. Our scouting is over for the time. The region behind them contained patches of scrub oaks and bushes, and with their aid and that of the darkness, it was not difficult to escape. But Dick, while running just behind the others, stepped in a hole and fell. The snow and dead leaves hid the sound of his fall, and the others did not notice it. As he looked up, he saw their dim forms disappearing among the bushes. He rose to his own feet, but uttered a little cry as a ligament in his ankle sent a warning throb of pain through his body. It was not a wrench, only a bruise, and as he stretched his ankle a few times, the soreness went away. But the last sound made by the retreating footsteps of his comrades had died, and their place had been taken by those of his pursuers, who were now drawing very near. Dick had no intention of being captured, and turning off at a right angle, he dropped into a gully which he encountered among some bushes. The gully was about four feet deep and half full of snow. Dick threw himself full length on his side and sank down in the snow until he was nearly covered. There he lay panting hard for a few moments, but quite sure that he was safe from discovery. Only a long and most minute search would be likely to reveal the dark line in the snow beneath the overhanging bushes. Dick's heart presently resumed its normal beat, and then he heard the sound of voices and footsteps. Someone said, They went this way, sir, but they were running pretty fast. They'd good cause to run, said a brusque voice. You've done it, too, if you'd expected the bullets of the whole army barking at your heels. The footsteps came nearer, crunching on the snow, which lay deep there among the bushes. They could not be more than a dozen feet away, but Dick quivered only a little. Buried as he was, and with the hanging bushes over him, he was still confident that no one could see him. He raised himself the least bit, and looking through the bows, saw a tanned and dark face under the broad brim of a Confederate hat. Just then someone said, We might have trailed him, General, but the snow and the earth have already been tramped up all by the army. They're not worth hunting long anyway, said the same brusque voice. Few Yankees prowling about in the night can't do us much harm. It's hard fighting that'll settle our quarrel. General Forrest came a little closer, and Dick, from his concealment in the snow, surmising his identity, saw him clearly, although himself unseen. He was fascinated by the stern, dark countenance. The face of the unlettered mountaineer was cut sharp and clear, and he had the look of one who knew and commanded. In war he was a natural leader of men, and he had already assumed the position. "'Don't you agree with me, Colonel?' he said over his shoulder to someone. "'I think you're right as usual, General Forrest,' replied a voice with a cultivated intonation, and Dick started violently in his bed of snow, because he instantly recognized the voice as that of his uncle, Colonel George Kenton, Harry's father." A moment later, Colonel Kenton himself stood where the moonlight fell upon his face. Dick saw that he was worn and thin, but his face had the strong and resolute look, characteristic of those descended from Henry Ware, the great borderer. 
You know, General, that I endorse all your views, continued Colonel Kenton. We are unfortunate here in having a division of councils, while the Yankees have a single and strong head. We have underrated this man, Grant. Look how he surprised us and took Henry. Look how he hangs on here. We've beaten him on land and we've driven back his fleet, but he hangs on. To my mind, he has no notion of retreating. He'll keep on pounding us as long as we are here. That's his way, and it ought to be the way of every general, growled Forrest. You cut down a tree by keeping on cutting out chips with an axe, and you smash up an army by hitting and hitting and keeping on hitting. We ought to charge right out of our works and jump on them Yankees with all our strength. The two walked on, followed by the soldiers who had come with them, and Dick heard no more. But he was too cautious to stir for a long while. He lay there until the cold began to make its way through his boots and heavy overcoat. Then he rose carefully, brushed off the snow, and began his retreat toward the Union lines. Four or five hundred yards further on, and he met Colonel Winchester and his own comrades come back to search for him. They welcomed him joyfully. "'We did not miss you until we were nearly to our own pickets,' said the colonel. "'Then we concluded that you had fallen and had been taken by the enemy. "'But we intended to see if we could find you. "'We've been hovering about here for some time.' "'Dick told what he had seen and heard, "'and the colonel considered it of much importance. "'I judge from what you heard that they will attack us,' he said. "'Buckner and Forrest will be strongly for it, "'and they're likely to have their way.' We must report at once to General Grant. The southern attack had been planned for the next morning, but it did not come then. Pillow, for reasons unknown, decided to delay another day, and his fiery subordinates could do nothing but chafe and wait. Dick spent most of the day carrying orders for his chief, and the continuous action steadied his nerves. As he passed from point to point, he saw that the Union Army itself was far from ready. It was a difficult task to get 20,000 raw farmer youths in proper position. They moved about, often without cohesion, and sometimes without understanding their orders. Great gaps remained in the line, and a daring and skillful foe might cut the besieging force asunder. But Grant had put his heavy guns in place, and throughout the day he maintained a slow but steady fire upon the fort. Great shells and solid shot curved and fell upon Donaldson. Grant did not know what damage they were doing, but he shrewdly calculated that they would unsteady the nerves of the raw troops within. These farmer boys, as they heard the unceasing menace of the big guns, would double the numbers of their foe and attribute to him an unrelaxing energy. Thus another gray day of winter wore away, and the two forces drew a little nearer to each other. Far away, the rival presidents at Washington and Richmond were wondering what was happening to their armies in the dark wilderness of western Tennessee. The night was more quiet than the one that had gone before. The booming of the cannon, as regular as the tolling of funeral bells, had ceased with the darkness, but in its place the fierce winter wind had begun to blow again. Dick, relaxed and weary after his day's work, hovered over one of the fires and was grateful for the warmth. He had trodden miles through slush and snow and frozen earth, and he was plastered to the waist with frozen mud, 
which now began to soften and fall off before the coals. Warner, who had been on active duty too, also sank to rest with a sigh of relief. It's battle tomorrow, Dick, he said, and I don't care. As it didn't come off today, the chances are at least 80% that it will happen the next day. You say that when you were lying in the snow last night, Dick, you saw your uncle and that he's a colonel in the rebel army. It's strange. You're wrong, George. It isn't strange. We're on opposite sides, serving at the same place, and it's natural that we should meet some time or other. Oh, I tell you, you fellows from the New England and the other northern states don't appreciate the sacrifices that we of the border states make for the Union. Up there, you're safe from invasion. Your houses are not on the battlefields. You're all on one side. You don't have to fight against your own kind, the people you hold most dear. And when the war is over, whether we win or lose, you'll go back to unravaged regions. You wrong me there, Dick. I have thought of it. It's the people of the border, whether north or south, who pay the biggest price. We risk our lives, but you risk your lives also, and everything else too. Dick wrapped himself in a heavy blanket, pillowed his head on a log before one of the fires, and dozed a while. His nerves had been tried too hard to permit of easy sleep. He awoke now and then, and over a wide area saw the sinking fires and the moving forms of men. He felt that a sense of uneasiness pervaded the officers. He knew that many of them considered their forces inadequate for the siege of a fortress defended by a large army. But he felt with the sincerity of conviction also that Grant would never withdraw. He heard from Colonel Winchester about midnight, in one of his wakeful intervals, that General Grant was going down the river to see Commodore Foote. The brave leader of the fleet had been wounded severely in the last fight with the fort, and the general wished to confer with him about the plan of operations. But Dick heard only vaguely. The statement made no impression upon him at the time. Yet he was conscious that the feeling of uneasiness still pervaded the officers. He noticed it in Colonel Winchester's tone, and he noticed it, too, in the voices of Colonel Newcomb and Major Hertford, who came presently to confer with Winchester. But the boy fell into his doze again while they were talking. Warner and Pennington, who had done less arduous duties, were sound asleep near him, the low flames now and then throwing a red light on their tanned faces. It seemed to him that it was about halfway between midnight and morning, and the hum and murmur had sunk to a mere minor note. But his sleepy eyes still saw the dim forms of men passing about, and then he fell into his uneasy doze again. When he awoke once more, it was misty and dark, but he felt that the dawn was near. In the east a faint tint of silver showed through the clouds and vapors. Heavy banks of fog were rising from the Cumberland and the flooded marshes. The earth began to soften, as if unlocking from the hard frost of the night. Colonel Winchester stood near him, and his position showed that he was intensely awake. He was bent slightly forward, and every nerve and muscle was strained, as if he was eager to see and hear something which he knew was there, but which he could not yet either see or hear. Dick threw off his blanket and sprang to his feet. At the same moment, Colonel Winchester motioned him to awaken Warner and Pennington, which he did at once in speed and silence. 
that tint of silver, the lining of fogs and vapors, shone more clearly through and spread across the east. Dick knew now that the dawn was at hand. The loud but mellow notes of a trumpet came from a distant point toward Donelson, and then others to right and left joined and sang the same mellow song, but it lasted only for a moment. Then it was lost in the rapid crackle of rifles, which spread like a running fire along the front of miles. The sun in the east swung clear of the earth, its beams shooting away through fogs and vapors. The dawn had come, and the attack had come with it. The southerners, ready at last, were rushing from their fort and works, and, with all the valor and fire that distinguished them upon countless occasions, they were hurling themselves upon their enemy. The fortress poured out regiment after regiment. Chafing so long upon the defense, southern youth was now at its best. Attacking, not attacked, the farmer lads felt the spirit of battle blaze high in their breasts. The long, terrible rebel yell, destined to be heard upon so many a desperate field, fierce upon its lower note, fierce upon its higher note, as fierce as ever upon its dying note, and coming back in echoes, still as fierce, swelled over the forest and fort, marsh and river. The crackling fire of the pickets ceased. They had been driven back in a few moments upon the army, but the whole regiment of Colonel Winchester was now up, rifle in hand, and on either side of it other regiments steadied themselves also to receive the living torrent. The little band of Pennsylvanians were on the left of the Kentuckians and were practically a part of them. Colonel Newcomb and Major Hertford stood amid their men, encouraging them to receive the shock. But Dick had time for only a glance at these old comrades of his. The southern wave, crested with fire and steel, was rolling swiftly upon them, and as the southern troops rushed on, they began to fire as fast as they could pull the trigger, fire and pull again. Bullets and sheets struck in the Union ranks. Hundreds of men went down. Dick heard the thud of lead and steel on flesh, and the sudden cries of those who were struck. It needs no small courage to hold fast against more than ten thousand men, rushing forward at full speed and, and bent upon victory or death. Dick felt all the pulses in his temples beating hard, and he had a horrible impulse to break and run, but pride kept him firm. As an officer, he had a small sword, and snatching it out, he waved it, while at the same time he shouted to the men to meet the charge. The Union troops returned the fire. Thousands of bullets were sent against the ranks of the rushing enemy. The gunners sprang to their guns, and the deep roar of the cannon rose above the crash of the small arms. But the southern troops, the rebel yell still rolling through the woods, came on at full speed and struck the Union front. It seemed to Dick that he was conscious of an actual physical shock. Tanned faces and gleaming eyes were almost against his own. He looked into the muzzles of rifles, and he saw the morning sun flashing along the edges of bayonets. But the regiment, though torn by bullets, did not give ground. The charge shivered against them, and the southern troops fell back. Yet it was only for a moment. They came again to be driven back as before, and then once more they charged, while their resolute foe swung forward to meet them rank to rank. Dick was not conscious of much, except that he shouted continuously to the men to stand firm, and wondered now and then why he had not been hit. 
The Union men and their enemy were reeling back and forth, neither winning, neither losing, while the thunder of battle along a long and curving front beat heavily on the drums of every ear. The smoke, low down, was scattered by the cannon and rifles, but above it gathered in a great cloud that seemed to be shot with fire. The two colonels, Winchester and Newcomb, were able and valiant men. Despite their swelling losses, they always filled up the ranks and held fast to the ground upon which they had stood when they were attacked. But for the present, they had no knowledge how the battle was going elsewhere. The enemy just before them allowed them no idle moments. Yet Grant, as happened later on at Shiloh, was taken by surprise. When the first roar of the battle broke with the dawn, he was away conferring with the wounded naval commander Foote. His right, under McClernand, had been caught napping, and 8,000 southern troops striking it with a tremendous impact, just as the men snatched up their arms, drove it back in heavy loss and confusion. Its disaster was increased when a southern general, Baldwin, led a strong column down a deep ravine near the river and suddenly hurled it upon the wavering Union flank. Whole regiments retreated now, and guns were lost. The southern officers, their faces glowing, shouted to each other that the battle was won. And still the combat raged without the Union commander, Grant, although he was coming now as fast as he could, with the increasing roar of conflict to draw him on. The battle was lost to the north. But it might be won back again by a general who would not quit. Only the bulldog in Grant, the tenacious death grip, could save him now. Dick and his friends suddenly became conscious that both on their right and left the thunder of battle was moving back upon the Union camp. They realized now that they were the only segment of a circle extending forward practically within the Union lines and that the combat was going against them. The word was given to retreat lest they be surrounded, and they fell back slowly, disputing with desperation every foot of ground that they gave up. Yet they left many fallen behind. A fourth of the regiment had been killed or wounded already, and there were tears in the eyes of Colonel Winchester as he looked over the torn ranks of his gallant men. Now the Southerners, meaning to drive victory home, were bringing up their reserves and pouring fresh troops upon the shattered Union front. They would have swept everything away, but in the nick of time a fresh Union brigade arrived also, supported the yielding forces, and threw itself upon the enemy. But Grant had not yet come. It seemed that in the beginning fortune played against this man of destiny, throwing all her tricks in favor of his opponents. The single time that he was away, the attack had been made, and if he would win back a lost battle, there was great need to hurry. The southern troops, exultant and full of fire and spirit, continually rolled back their adversaries. They wheeled more guns from the fort into position and opened heavily upon the yielding foe. If they were beaten back at any time, they always came on again, a restless wave crested with fire and steel. Dick's regiment continued to give ground slowly. It had no choice but to do so or be destroyed. It seemed to him now that he beheld the wreck of all things. Was this to be bull run over again? His throat and eyes burned from the smoke and powder, and his face was black with grime. 
His lips were like fire to the touch of each other. He staggered in the smoke against someone and saw that it was Warner. "'Have we lost?' he cried. "'Have we lost after doing so much?' The lips of the Vermonter parted in a kind of savage grin. "'I won't say we've lost,' he shouted in reply. "'But I can't see anything we've won.' Then he lost Warner in the smoke, and the regiment retreated yet further. It was impossible to preserve cohesion or keep a line formed. The Southerners never ceased to press upon them with overwhelming weight. Pillow, now decisive in action, continually accumulated new forces upon the northern right. Every position that McClernand had held at the opening of the battle was now taken, and the Confederate general was planning to surround and destroy the whole Union army. Already he was sending messengers to the telegraph with news for Johnston of his complete victory. But the last straw had not yet been laid upon the camel's back. McClernand was beaten, but the hardy men of Kentucky, East Tennessee, and the Northwest still offered desperate resistance. Conspicuous among the defenders was the regiment of young pioneers from Nebraska, hunters, Indian fighters, boys of twenty or less, who had suffered already every form of hardship. They stood undaunted amid the shower of bullets and shells and cried to the others to stand with them. Yet the condition of the Union Army grew steadily worse. Dick himself, in all the smoke and shouting and confusion, could see it. The regiments that formed the core of resistance were being pared down continually. There was a steady dribble of fugitives to the rear, and those who fought felt themselves going back always, like one who slips on ice. The sun, far up in the heavens, now poured down beams upon the vast cloud of smoke and vapor in which the two armies fought. The few people left in Dover, red-hot for the south, cheered madly as they saw their enemy driven further and further away. Grant, the man of destiny, ill-clad and insignificant in appearance, now came upon the field and saw his beaten army. But the bulldog in him shut down its teeth and resolved to replace defeat with victory. His greatest qualities, strength and courage in the face of disaster, were now about to shine forth. His countenance showed no alarm. He rode among the men, cheering them to renewed efforts. He strengthened the weak places in the line that his keen eyes saw. He infused a new spirit into the army. His own iron temper took possession of the troops, and that core of resistance, desperate when he came, suddenly hardened and enlarged. Dick felt the change. It was of the mind, but it was like a cool breath upon the face. It was as if the winds had begun to blow courage. A great shout rolled along the northern line. "'Grant has come!' exclaimed Pennington, who was bleeding from a slight wound in the shoulder, but who was unconscious of it. "'And we've quit retreating!' The Nebraska youth had divined the truth. Just when a complete southern victory seemed to be certain, the reversal of fortune came. The coolness, the courage, and the comprehensive eye of Grant restored the battle for the north. The southern reserves had not charged with the fire and spirit expected, and, met with a shattering fire by the Indiana troops, they fell back. Grant saw the opportunity, and massing every available regiment, he hurled it upon Pillow in the southern center. Dick felt the wild thrill of exultation. As they went forward instead of going back, 
as they had done for so many hours. Just in front of him was Colonel Winchester, waving aloft a sword, the blade of which had been broken in two by a bullet, and calling to his men to come on. Warner and Pennington, grimed with smoke and mud, and stained here and there with blood, were near also, shouting wildly. The smoke split asunder for a moment, and Dick saw the long line of charging troops. It seemed to be a new army now, infused with fresh spirit and courage, and every pulse in the boy's body began to beat heavily with the hope of victory. The smoke closed in again, and then came the shock. Exhausted by their long efforts, which had brought victory so near, the southern troops gave way. Their whole center was driven in, and they lost, foot by foot, the ground that they had gained with so much courage and blood. Grant saw his success, and he pressed more troops upon his weakening enemy. The batteries were pushed forward and raked the shattered southern lines. Pillow, who had led the attack instead of Floyd, seeing his fortunes pass so suddenly from the zenith to the nadir, gathered his retreating army upon a hill in front of their entrenchments, but he was not permitted to rest there. A fresh northern brigade, a reserve, had just arrived upon the field. Joining it to the forces of Lew Wallace, afterwards famous as a novelist, Grant hurled the entire division upon Pillow's weakened and discouraged army. Winchester's regiment joined in the attack. Dick felt himself swept along as if by a torrent. His courage, and the courage of those around him, was all the greater now, because hope, sanguine hope, had suddenly shot up from the very depths of despair. Their ranks had been thinned terribly, but they forgot it for the time and rushed upon their enemy. The battle had rolled back and forth for hours. Noon had come and passed. The troops of Pillow had been fighting without ceasing for six hours, and they could not withstand the new attack made with such tremendous spirit and energy. They fought with desperation, but they were compelled at last to yield the field and retreat within their works. Their right and left suffered the same fate. The whole Confederate attack was repulsed. Bull Run was indeed reversed. There the South snatched victory from defeat, and here the North came back with a like triumph. 